All right, good morning. We are on page 84, tab 4. We started wading in last week to um, a discussion on our core value of leadership and its other side of the coin, followership. So here's, I would love to give you an answer to this. The ideal pastor is what? <laughs> Good I did not put her up to that, but you get high marks for that. See, I'm kind of looking for an adjective, <laughs> not a name, but I'm, 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 I'm highly encouraged by that. Okay, so my ego has been duly stroked. Seriously, when you think about what, what matters to me, somebody that I would call a pastor, an elder, a shepherd. What are the qualities that you, you think about? Humble. Humble. All right. Humility. <laughs> what else? Biblical. Biblical. Right. Uh huh. And it's all appropriate that he thinks of 1 Timothy 3 2. able to identify. Uh, Mr. Mr. Allen, we're talking about the ideal pastor. <laughs> I've already established before my wife that I am that, but <laughs> we've actually moved on to more objective reporting now, okay? Would you add to the list at all? Humble, biblical, seeking gifts, servant, transparent, wise, understanding, and set. Yeah, right. I'm happy to put him on the spot. The guy wants to be a pastor someday. He's going to have to get used to being on the spot. <laughs> right? Yeah. I feel like studious, like willing to dig into the word. Absolutely. Which it very much relates to um, the teaching gift. You've got to work hard in the study, for sure. Serving. Serving. Prayerful or? Like Prayerful? Absolutely. Absolutely. Matthew 6 4. We shall devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the Lord. Right, we had servant before, serving, sorry. A lot involved, huh? Well, <coughs> some wag unknown came up with the description of the perfect pastor. Are you ready? After hundreds of years, the perfect pastor has been found. He's the church elder who will please everyone. Two, he preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. 
Three, yeah, oh well. <laughs> so much for your thoughts, right? Three, he condemns sin but never steps on anybody's toes. Four, he works from eight in the morning to 10 at night doing everything from preaching sermons to sweeping. Five, he makes $400 per week, gives $100 a week to the church, drives a late model car, buys lots of books, wears fine clothes, and has a nice family. Six, he always stands ready to contribute to every other good cause, too, and to help panhandlers who drop by the church on their way to somewhere. Three, he is 36 years old and has been preaching for 40 years. <laughs> Eight, he is tall on the short side, heavy set in a thin sort of way, and handsome. Nine, he has eyes of blue or brown to fit the occasion, wears his hair parted in the middle, left side dark and straight, right side brown and wavy. Ten, he has a burning desire to work with the youth and spends all his time with senior citizens. Eleven, he smiles all the time while keeping a straight face because he's a keen sense of humor that finds him seriously dedicated. Twelve, he makes 15 calls a day on church members, spends all his time evangelizing non-members, and is always found in his study if he's needed. Unfortunately, he burnt himself out and died at the age of 32. <laughs> well, <coughs> it's funny, but there are some answers to that, that if you have been involved in pastoral ministry, make you wince, but we'll leave it at that. Um, our paradigm, uh, and Rachel, uh, having stepped in today here for the first time again, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Um, we've been working through our core values. The, the structure of our Discover, as you see, is our values and our mission and vision. And so we have 10 core values, and we've been working through passion for God, intercessory prayer, our, our biblical thinking, Reformed theology. We have a section on baptism, what we practice and teach here. And um, expository preaching is something we talked about, how we approach the, the scriptures and the preaching of the word. And then last week, we started to wade into leadership and followership. We follow the paradigm that we find in the New Testament of uh, the locus of authority in the church being vested in elders as officers and deacons. These are the two that the scripture points to in their roles in the local church. And we started with elders last week, talking about their authority being the authority to serve, and that their role is to guide the flock and guard the flock, and that mo most importantly is their character. If you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 at the bottom of page 83, you'll see very clearly that what the scripture is primarily concerned about is that you have a person of integrity in the ministry. Again, in the elder, there is a particular emphasis on giftedness in the realm of teaching. By the way, I don't think that that necessarily means that he has to be able to stand up in the pulpit and do what I do as a rotational preacher or teacher. But he does need to be able to say, if John comes to an elder and says, hmm, I'm really struggling with my insurance of salvation, can you help me? You ought to be able to know where you're taking them in the scripture. I open First John 5, 11 to 13, and walk you through some of that. Or if somebody's interested in being baptized, I'll be able to come to an elder and say, what do I need to know about baptism? He's going to open you up to Romans 6 and First Peter 3, and he's going to talk you through the biblical principles that pertain there. But not everybody is going to be the kind of person that's going to stand up and herald the world, if I could put it that way. Does that make sense? He has to be able to 
Coach Cheech died so, um, We left off with a controversial note, pending these days, and the office of elder is reserved for men. Top of page 84. You have three fundamental views here, if I can simplify it. A hierarchical, where entirely authority is entrusted to men and everybody else falls underneath that. Complementarian, which is where we fall as a label if you need it, that men and women are equal. God has gifted both for various aspects of ministry in the local church. You want to unleash all for the benefit of the welfare of the body. But when it comes to the exercise of authority in the local church and the proclamation and teaching of God's word when gathered for corporate worship, that responsibility lies with men. And we would appeal to a text, even as God calls men to be the servant leaders of their homes, there is a complementary role there. I am president of the Heffelfinger household. Right there is my vice president. I am regent, she is vice regent. If the regent is smart, he never makes a big decision without the unity and the oneness and understanding and the togetherness of the vice regent. Very rarely does he need to invoke, uh, well, hey, I'm head of the household, just get in line. All right? That's just, I, I don't think I've ever pulled that. Sorry. So I just uh, can't agree with wait on the Lord and we try to work it through. So, um, so true, God has said, men step up, and women let them lead. I would appeal to, this is not the only passage you can look at, but a text like 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, is, is pretty straightforward. Could I have a reader, please, on that passage? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Is that one you Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she should, is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, <coughs> but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I'm not sure I would courageous or foolhardy, but I preached that passage for Mother's Day about 10 years ago. <laughs> I, I survived the day, so I guess it was all right. I don't know, but um, I, I'm, I can't go into a lot of detail on this. I, I, I hope particularly sisters are hearing me, is that this is not about identity in Christ. All right, there's, there's, there's Galatians 3.25, no male or female. Um, and, you know, God help the husband that doesn't take First Peter 3, 7 seriously. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Grant them honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And I want very much as a pastor, we want to be able to be releasing women for the roles and the gifted ministry that God has for them in the local church. But we acknowledge that when it comes to this leadership authority thing, it's incumbent upon the men to take the responsibility in that area. So... Um, I can't, I, I just, I don't want that. We're, we're not this third here egalitarian. The other can't usually, but there's some very godly people hold to, and, you know, I guess we'll report to that room in heaven as well and say, Lord, well, what, what did you really mean? What did we miss? But where the distinctions are flattened continu completely, and you'll have a woman in the pulpit who will be ordained as a pastoral 
minister and have an office as elder. That's just, that's not where we are. So again, part of the responsibility of Discovery of BC is to make sure that all the fine print is out there and you know where we stand on some of these things. So if but if you'd like a PDF of that manuscript, if you're interested in more insight or understanding, I try to go into the distinction about authority and leadership and what in the world Paul means when he says you're going to be saved through childbearing. So if you want to email me, I'll be happy to send you the PDF. Okay, how elders shepherd matters as much as what they do as shepherds. I think that matters from a text like 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3. Can I have a reader there, please? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see how all those are about the how? You know, eagerly. You don't, you don't want a guy coming to the office that you, you, you drag kicking and screaming. There has to be an, an impetus in his heart for it, and you certainly don't want him um, uh, stealing from the coffers, uh, being fond of uh, shameful game. I think that's what that passage verse is talking about. An eager, not wanting to, you know, pack his own pockets. And clearly you want him to be a servant, not domineering over others, but being an example to the flock. So the how he goes about it is important. Did, did I talk about last week, help me remember, the pattern and way that we go about receiving nominations and raising up new leaders? I did talk about that year-long process. Okay, great. Um, now, deacons, the only thing I'm going to say about deacons is that they serve in practical ways. Where deacon is the diakonos, uh, diakonos, servant. Um, they serve in practical ways so as to free elders to do their shepherding. How about a reader for Acts 6, 1 to 4? Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because of their widows were being neglected in their daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this duty. Whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here you have the church growing like crazy. There's a problem that has some ethnic challenges and tensions to it with widows of the Hellenist Greek uh, persuasion not, uh, or background not being served. And so it's just getting way too much for the elders to handle all on their own. So the flock, good morning, Mr. and Mrs. Good That's good to have you here. We're on page 84, um, talking about deacons. So the solution was appoint for yourselves, bring forth some seven men full of the spirit and wisdom, godly integrity, who will be able to wait on the tables so that we can keep focusing on what we do. And we follow that division of labor here. 
other land of grace. The deacons are tasked with practical matters like uh, benevolence needs for people who have are struggling financially, care for the facility, handling the finances, all the practical matters that will free us up as elders for shepherding care. Now, we do meet as a joint team once a month in what we call our joint leadership team meeting, where we'll get together at 6.30, we pray till about 7.15, and we jump into what we call the joint leadership team agenda, trying to, those things that it's important to have both sides of the offices talking about, we'll generally be together till about nine. Then the deacons go meet on their own to talk about serving matters, the elders stay and talk about shepherding matters. So we, we've learned that we, we have to have kind of an overlap because we've gotten into some trouble in the past with elders and deacons not having adequate communication with one another. That was one of the things that we learned about from our church split back in 02, that we've been pretty careful about making sure we don't air things. Different churches do that in different ways. That's okay. The Bible doesn't really specify the particulars there. You figure that out as you go. Questions about elders and deacons. I realize that's dreadfully brief. Yes, Andre. Uh, can deacons be women? Or can women... Uh, we do not have women deacons. That is a great question. Okay? Because we invest in our deacons a degree of authority for leadership. We do not have deaconesses. I wouldn't have a problem if we just said, here's a deacon over facility, here's a deaconess over hospitality, and there was no related authority. Our churches have the deacons in a role of authority, and so we have opted not to have deaconesses. But, I mean, Jim, uh, what's Jim's name? <laughs> that guy who's taking him over for me. <laughs> In Oxford, Mississippi, that was a question that was raised to him. They had deaconesses, just like Mark Devers Church in Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill Baptist, they had deaconesses. They're simply appointed servants over different varying areas, and they carry out the role under the authority of the elders. If we were set up that way, we would have deaconesses, too. At this point, that's not been something that we've done. Good question. Anything else before I talk to you about your role in this tango of leadership and followership? Okay, principles of biblical followership. One, first bullet point, cultivate quality relationships. Cultivate quality relationships. Can I have a reader? From 1 Pet 5. We ask the brothers who accept those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love What are some themes that stand out there as you look at that passage in terms of a way to relate to your church leaders? What do you see? Respect them. Respect, uh-huh. Do you see a synonym there? Esteem them very highly. Esteem them very highly in love. Wow. That word respect at the top there of the passage we ask your brothers to respect is literally the Greek word know them, K-N-O-W. 
Now I think the translator is borrowing from the esteem that is very highly in love and nuancing the no to the K-N-O-W to respect, rightly so. But the idea is that you have enough knowledge of them, at least some of them, that you can actually legitimately esteem and respect them. So now, granted, that implies and requires that they'll be available, right? Um, and I, I hope we get that as shepherds. One of the reasons why I like to have this class, Jan and I like to have this class into the home for a meal during it is so we have a chance to get to know you and vice versa. Um, so there is this, the need for relationships. So one thing that happens here with members who decide to identify and covenant with us is that while you're in this role as um, attenders, I'm your elder, if I could put it that way. If you have a pastoral need, call me, email me, text me, um, call the office. I'd be happy to help in any way I can. Um, once you commit, if you will, and become a member, then you're assigned to one of our, let me put it this way, well, I call them non-vocational elders. We have two vocational elders here, Pastor Mike Graham, who's the pastor of administration, and me, the pastor teacher. And then we have five vo non-vocational or sometimes referred to as lay elders. They have full-time jobs, but they are shepherds of the flock as well. And as soon as we finish installing a group of new members, then at the next board meeting, each of those households is assigned to an elder. And that becomes the main shepherd in your lives that you start with if you have a need. Part of the reason for doing that is it's biblical. All elders are pastors. The other more important reason in my mind is that it keeps a pastor teacher from burnout. That you're not, all, you're not too many people for the needs to all land on one set of shoulders. So there's a division of labor. There's a, a dispersing of the responsibility. Now that doesn't mean that I don't get involved at points, and I'm sure Jim Davis will as well. There are plenty of things that involve tag teaming, but you start with your elder and you're informed who that is as soon as soon after you become a member. And hopefully that's somebody you get to know and he gets to know you. So, top of page um, 85, and don't let me forget to talk about this. I mentioned this last week, this booklet that we went running for and I found hidden away in a cabinet. Listen up, a practical guide to listening to sermons. Uh, when I finish this section, I want to talk to you about that. Um, top of page 85, practice biblical commitments with your leaders. Practice biblical commitments with your leaders. Sometimes people will ask me, well, what's different about being a member and just being a regular attender? When you become a member, and people call it different things. I, I don't really care what you call it. But when you solidify and more formalize an agreement of a leadership, fellowship, arrangement in a local church, 
here's a text I would point people to to say, you're embracing these things as followers in this local church that you don't have in any other local church. Can somebody read 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 20, please? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and a laborer reserved for the laborer. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand against them. Now in this passage, there are three three commitments that the scripture, Paul the Apostle, the same members of a local church, have to embrace in terms of how they respond to their leaders. What's 17 and 18 talking about? I love this part of this chapter. Well, Paul, Paul says to consider them worthy of double honor. What's he referring to? Any ideas? Pam. Pam, how? Wages make good money. Yeah, what kind? <laughs> Double on. See, I love this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Pay him well. More than $400 a week. More than $400 a week, especially since he's giving away one quarter of it, right? <laughs> right. Now, if I'm, I'm flashing a Rolex, which, by the way, this is not. Okay? <laughs> I'm driving an O2 pickup truck, all right? Paid for. Runs just perfectly fine. It was my boy's when he passed away. I have a very great fondness for that truck, okay? So, but <clears throat> what does Paul say? And we know this is what he's talking about, right, for other reasons, but he said the labor is Jesus' words. The laborer deserves his wages. Right? Paul talks about elsewhere. It's legitimate for a minister of the gospel to earn his living from the gospel. All right? What particularly should you be concerned? What role does the pastor serve here in this text that makes you want to make sure you pay him enough to meet his expenses? What's he working hard at? Preaching and teaching. You're setting him free to be able to be in here on Monday through Thursday morning and get into the text and have something to say when he shows up on Sunday that will feed your soul. Now, what's this thing about oxen? What is that about? Don't muzzle the ox while he's That's weird, huh? Well, it makes perfectly good sense. <laughs> oh, sorry. you got to feed him while the ox is running around in the Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, the stingy Jewish farmer, Israelite farmer, would have the threshing wheel and the oxen hooked up to it to go round and round, threshing out the grain to separate the chaff from, from the grain, and some would muzzle the oxen so that he couldn't eat while he was treading out the grain. And the, the Lord said, I care about oxen. Let them eat. There's going to be plenty for you. Well, Paul borrows from that and says, you're <laughs> and for some of us, this metaphor hits closer to home. The ox who is your shepherd, who's studying and preaching and teaching the word of God to you, don't muzzle them. Make sure you pay him adequately in order to see that his needs are met. Now, so, here's commitment number one. Your first blank on page 85. Provide for their financial support. If you can. Not every church can do that. For example, Winston Miller, who's now on to South Florida and is planting a church, 
and they end up being bivocational for a while. I mean, the heroes to me in the Church of Jesus Christ, there are a number of them, but one of them is bivocational pastors who have to work full-time or part-time and also pastor. I don't know how they do it. It's Your dad it's did it. Did it? <laughs> yeah. Your dad did it? Yeah. How did he survive? I mean, good it was grief. Hard. It was yeah, hard, really yeah. Hard. I mean, yeah. It, good grief. That's just, it's brutal. So I, my hat's off to anybody that does that. But... <coughs> Here are a couple of other verses that will help with this, and I'll talk a little bit about our approach to finances here, okay, is giving, because you'll probably want to know about that. Galatians 6.6, 6. have a reader there, please. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. <coughs> Simple, right? If I'm the teacher, and you're a covenant member, your commitment is... All good things. Now in Idaho, that could mean a dozen eggs. Or in the summer, we would boast or we would joke about if you left your car windows down, great gardens, huge vegetable gardens. And people grow zucchinis the size of torpedoes, <laughs> all right? And nobody can ever eat, can cook all of those zucchinis. So, you would be the victim of a drive-by zucchini if you left <laughs> your window open on a Sunday at church, okay? But <coughs> there, if, if, and, and what precedes this verse is Paul saying, God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you reap. So to the flesh, you reap destruction. So to the spirit, you reap eternal life. Let him who taught the word show his interest in the future. You are sowing to your own eternal welfare. Now choose wisely. Okay, in terms of whomever you say, that's the person in this season of my life I want having that role primarily, but I'm going to be committed to partnering in the care. Now, again, not every church can do that fully. We've been very fortunate here from the very beginning that Orlando Grace has been able to provide for the three of us who have been in that role and are planning to do the same for Baptist Jim. Now, the question is how much? May I have a reader for 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 7? <coughs> the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully <coughs> will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When Paul starts talking about giving to the Corinthians, how does he say you should figure out how much you should give? As each one desires in his heart. So Tom, if you come to me and say, Pastor Kurt, how much should I be giving to the church? You know what I'm going to tell you? I have no idea. Now some of you might say, why aren't you saying the tithe? We don't teach tithing here, though I would never say to you if the Lord has convinced you from the scripture that that's his counsel, your conscience is constrained, you're going to get a tenth, off the top of your income, I praise the Lord, make the tithe increase. By the way, anybody tell me what the average evangelical Christian in North America gives to his church in all charitable concerns of his income? Anybody know what the number is? 2%. Three. Maybe elsewhere it's called tithing 10%, the training wheels of giving. Um, I think that's a very interesting metaphor. Um, so I would want to say that if, if you're accustomed to the tithe, 
that in the seven percent of the average person sitting in our country, uh, I salute you. All right. So you teach Grace sitting here that you have a tithe that you have to give. It's called taxes. It's mandatory. You can't. You can not do that, but you'll be violating the law, right? And then everything else is above and beyond that charitable giving. You need to say, as God has given you increase, as you have decided in your own heart, and if you're being abundantly blessed, it's probably going to be a season we're going to give more. Mm -hmm. If you have less of an income, it's probably going to be less. Now, you know, our income is changing as of the end of this year. I've already informed a number of the charitable concerns that we have that my support, our support is going to be changing. Just because we're not going to have the same level of income that we've had before. I have to make that adjustment. So, um, again, I'm, I'm throwing at you a theology of a variety of different things in a very small and short fashion that can be very frustrating. But um, you know, I, just, I, I want you understanding where we're, where we're coming from. So, um, <coughs> the final... Um, you certainly met. <laughs> that uh, this was shocking to me when I was in Wisconsin three times, um, and it makes sense to me that we always want, as humans, rules. You tell me X, right, and I can do X. Which I would like you to do. Give me a bunch of rules, and then I can do it, and I can see that I'm doing it better than that person. And so. What happens if you don't have one of those is you have to seek the Lord. Mm -hmm. Like you actually have to ask him, what do you want me to do? You actually have to communicate with the Lord and it might be more than you want it to, you know? And so I, I don't know, I just wanted to throw that out there that the option is is if you don't have a, a given number, then you have to talk to the Lord about it and ask what he wants you to do. Yeah. Clearly, the expectation is you'll give. Now, another question that I'll get is how much should I give to my church and how much should I give to missions or the poor? My answer will be the same. I'm, very, I'm not very helpful. I don't know. You've got to figure that one out. Typically, at the end of the year, at tax time, I'll look at what percentage of our giving has gone has been given, and then uh, see if we need to make an adjustment. And you know, there, there's some who will teach you that you're, you know, right off the top. Well, some churches will teach what they call storehouse giving. All of your giving should be coming to the church, and then the church distributing from there. We don't teach that here. I don't want that kind of control in your life. I don't think the scripture substantiates that. So you figure out. I, I, what I'm hoping is you'll be as generous as the gospel communicates and constrains you to be. And that the more you're blessed by God, then the more you're going to be releasing. The more in his sovereignty he restricts, then the more you're going to have to pull back. But um, that's a, something I would trust you to be evaluating on an ongoing basis. So. We had a problem in our church where they, they never preached on giving. Really? And so... Because of that, they ended up, you know, a lot of financial problems. Sure. In many different seasons, but uh, and yeah. Yeah. What, what is your thought on that? I mean, 
Well, that's one of the reasons why I love expository preaching. Yeah. Right. Is that when it's in the text, like right. there was, uh, I didn't say much about it, you know, but when, when Jacob made his vow to the Lord at the end of 28, I think, they're all running together now when I'm trying to do so many chapters at one time. You know, he talked about a tenth I'll give. Now, right. I, didn't, I didn't go into the nuances of the tenth, and that was before the law and all of that, but I just said he went from being a grabber to a giver. All right, so I made that brief note. I, you know, there have been times where we've been in, in need, and I've been tasked by the elders need to preach on giving. Um, we have this in the class. Um, we had a capital campaign when we set out to do the building, and I preached um, through Haggai. You know, so um, it just depends upon the time and season, and we just kind of let the scripture speak for itself. We, we, we do communicate each week what the giving is. Um, when necessary, we make announcements about wh where we are. Sometimes we'll have a year, end of the year, you know, campaign to try to make up some of where we're behind in the budget. But um, nobody in leadership knows what anybody gives. I don't want to know. Right. But we know who's not giving. If a household would go for a year, generally we'll look at this once a year, and um, all households are numerically listed, not by name, but if a number comes up over, say, six months to a year and there's no giving, then we'll ask for who that household is, and the elder that's shepherding that household will be tasked to say, and to go to that household and say, to come to our attention that you're either not able to or not willing or what are you okay one of the reasons we do that we want to know how they're doing financially and are they in trouble sometimes people won't come and talk to you about that but we will engage because it is a gospel reality that you're a giver and that you are let him just talk the word share all the things with him who teaches that you're owning whatever that percentage is the support of your local shepherd yeah, another, another good question. Mm, if anything, we probably err, though, and not, we, we want to be careful that we're not beating that drum all the time. So it's not like we talk about it a whole lot. But, yeah. Okay, final, um, well, not the final, second charge in verse 19, protect them from false accusations. Protect them from false accusations. Don't accept an accusation. <coughs> Admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then three, though, when you have a legitimate charge and the truth has been some fault or failure, particularly habitual unrepentant sin, then you are to practice church discipline. You practice church <coughs> discipline for them when they fall. <coughs> We had a, we're going to talk about church discipline when I teach on peacemaking. We, we, it was not an elder, but we had an intern in the past in the area of worship and music that uh, he was a moral failure. We had to practice church discipline. And uh, he remains under censure, and we pr pray for Pete on a regular basis that God would restore him. And I hope that someday he will. But for now, that remains something that we had to do. It was not the easiest thing. But we sought to love him well. And I'll talk more about that when we get to it. 
as we finish up here, I didn't want to spend this much time, but the Lord knows. So, um, Hebrews 13, 17. Can I have a reader again, please? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who have to give an account, let them do this with joy, not with boring groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If God loves a cheerful giver, right? Second Corinthians, <coughs> Paul says that to motivate the Corinthians. I would take this verse and nuance it. God loves a cheerful pastor. And you have a role to play in that, in terms of how easily led you are. I'm going to put it this way. Practice thoughtful submission. The submit verse can make people nervous, and perhaps rightly so. I spent the first six and a half, seven years of my Christian life in a church where the leadership abused authority, and this trump card was played regularly in a way to control, dominate, and manipulate those under the leadership. This is a mail that's sent to the follower. This is for you to process. And I, the, the idea behind the word obey is a thoughtful, easily led, not that you don't ever speak up about a disagreement or have a differing view, but you take very seriously the responsibilities that the leadership has and want to support, want to follow. Does that make sense? These are guys who are keeping watch over your souls, and they take that seriously. And lastly, 1 Peter 5, 5. This is for all of us. A reader again. Okay, so here's, you're younger, be subject to the elders. Here's that word, submit again. This is your responsibility. Then he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. It's a different word. Elders and people alike are to have a, a, a lowliness of spirit toward one another, a humility, a servant-mindedness. Why? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Manifest humility. In all relationships. Questions about leadership and followership. Yes, I'm about financing. Uh-huh. Um, in, in this church, for example, if the new people come, um, we're going to have a new land distribute funds among, uh, among the missionaries, maybe a couple of plus missionaries. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, they have a budget, and then if you come down to the point where the giving is less, uh, um, I would hope that uh, the local ministry sponsoring the pastor will remember will be, uh, I guess, compromised. I don't know. It will continue, but uh, maybe the missionaries or other ministry sponsorship maybe have to that's a good question about how do you steward finances when the, the budget gets tight. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I'm thankful in 15 years of being the lead pastor here, I've never had a pay cut. 
I've grown some years where there wasn't an increase, and that's been fine. Um, I'm also thrilled to say we've never cut, for a lack of funds, a missionary budget. We've always started that with tremendous um, zeal, uh, wanting to, because we, we know the livelihood depends upon that. Um, we have always, when we've had lean times, and we have had them, we have always just said, where can we cut, but not staff and um, missionaries. So we've just tightened our ministry belts. We have, um, we just, we've, we've watched what we spend. <coughs> um, we're really careful. So um, we've never, uh, we've never been forced to say it's so tight. Who's going to cut? And how much? Whether missionaries or local staff. I'm not sure where we could land there, to tell you the truth. I just think the commitment is at the very last resort that we do that because people's well, well being is involved. Who makes those kind of decisions? What's that? Who makes those kind Elders. of decisions? With the deacons' advice and counsel. Like, we'll task an elder. Elders will task the deacons, hey, we've got an issue here. Like, for example, we just gave a pretty significant pay increase to Mike Graham, who's been working for under, well under since he started. He knew that he would be starting that way. So um, with the changeover with Jim and how hard Mike's been working and having the wherewithal to do it, the elders cast the deacons, take a look at the pay structure, and come back and make a recommendation to us. But the elders have the authority to say, where the funds will be spent and how much. But we work very closely with the deacons who are savvy in those areas and make recommendations to us. Yeah. yeah. Kirk, Richard, Kirk Richard is? Kirk Richard acts as a church treasurer. Yep, and he's a deacon. Right. That used to be Paul Hunt's role. He did it for years, and then God decided he wanted him at home with him, and <laughs> he went home in October after a battle with cancer. So. But this, but Kirk, but this is treasurer. And he is on the mission committee as well. So he is our deacon over finances. Again, all the deacons weigh in on that, but he, he keeps the books in both. So his hand is well familiar with what's going on in both of those worlds. So. Anything else? I, I have uh, something. Sure. And it's uh, something because we, we actually have this, I guess, as an issue in our church. And it, it says, uh, likewise, you who are younger. Yeah. Uh, so what is the age then that you would pick for elder or for uh, That's a great question. Too. You guys have good questions today. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Um, I think younger is a figure of speech Could for the follower. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now, the question becomes, what's, what's, a, what's a good age for somebody to be an elder? I think more than not, they're going to have some gray hairs or no hair. Right. But occasionally you find a younger man with a godly heart and tall. And as long as he checks out spiritually and biblically uh, and in his family, and he's a churchman, so we have Will Powell as a younger man, of course Mike is, and um, so I've been very, very pleased with that. So I, I don't think you can 
You know, if they're looking for rules, they might be looking for hard, fast numbers, too. It's a judgment. It's a judgment call. So, yeah, I don't know if that adequately How answers. Young, how young is the life in the Mike's in his 30s. Well, as well. I don't know how far into them. But, yeah. Yes, sir. Young Dave said that Homo Zerbo in this case is younger. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes the demographics will make a difference in that. Just don't sacrifice integrity. And there's got to be a measure of giftedness and that eagerness to care for the church. You know, the fact that you go out and say, well, let's train him to be an elder and he'll actually, maybe he'll become one. I don't ever go for it. I'm always looking for the guy that says, I'm an elder in a church whether you ever label me or not. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with us, but we're Lord willing, we're going to Idaho, we're going to get involved in the church there. They may never ever acknowledge me as an elder, but I'm a, we're going to care for people. We're going to teach and, and counsel in the scriptures when we have an opportunity. If that's in your blood, in your DNA, and God has given you that, you can't shake that. That's just not ever going to go away. So, I'm blooming or planted, however old you are. Because you could be young in age, but you're older when it comes to being saved. Absolutely. And you can be old in age and very, very young. Very young in the spirit and very carnal. And I want nothing to do with you as a leader. I'll try to shepherd you. Right. And I'm going to do this a little bit, but <laughs> church history. All right. All right, we'll start with, our, we've overlapped our global missions a little bit. We'll pick that up on page 86 next week. And uh, <coughs> let's uh, close in prayer and we'll head to corporate worship. John, would you lead us? Thank you.